Welcome to episode number 170 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is a podcast for building a global community around process safety and entries handling combustible dust. I'm your show host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we are discussing the history of the United Steelworkers in Canada. We're doing that with Steve Hunt, USW Director, District 3 Director, based out of Western Canada. Steve, welcome to the Dust Safety Science Podcast today. Thank you, Chris. We're excited to have Steve on. This is kind of going to be an interesting episode. I received from a, a colleague, someone who follows the safety science, a link to an article that was United Steelworkers statement on the 10th anniversary of the Babine sawmill explosion, something we covered on the, the podcast before, kind of from, from several different angles. And I started digging into USW from here. Uh, I got connected with Steve and learning about the efforts they've done over the last several decades in supporting workers in facilities that are handling combustible dust and even going back to something that's near and dear to my heart, which is the West Drake coal mine explosion, which Steve will, was involved with and we'll talk to today. And it was just really interesting to get that. So that's the purpose of this episode is give some of that lineage. What is and who are the United Steelworkers? What role do they play? We're going to give some of Steve's background um, and, and what he does with that organization. When did USW get involved with combustible dust? We're going to talk a bit about the history then. There's a, a report that's really covering a lot of this, which is Hell's History, a report that documents the USW's fight to prevent workplace deaths and injuries from the 1992 West Ray mine disaster through to 2016. That's going to be the basis of this discussion. And then next week on the podcast, we're going to come back and talk a bit more recently what's gone on over the last number of years in response to Babine and, and Lakeland Mills and some other combustible dust incidents out west. So Steve, I've rambled on enough. I think before we get into your role, Maybe we'll give some background on United Steelworkers. Just what what is United Steelworkers and what role do they play in Canada? Sure, Chris. We're, we're one of Canada's uh, largest industrial unions, and in 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 the union sphere in Canada now, uh, when we say industrial, we represent workers everywhere now. So from heavy heavy industry, mining, uh, forestry, uh, to people that work in coffee shops and uh, healthcare facilities. So so as as the labor movement is. Uh, has evolved. Uh, we 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 are really everywhere now. So our expertise started in in heavy industry, primarily in the mining and steelmaking industry, and and from that uh, we learned an awful lot about health and safety. Uh, probably Chris the hard way. Uh, you know we suffered uh, terrible deaths and serious serious injuries and occupational illnesses. Uh, uh, you know that really uh, really schooled us in. In, in how to fight for uh, for the health and safety of workers and uh, and survivors, uh, oftentimes. So that's sort of the genesis of uh, of our fight on health and safety, and 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 because of that, we uh, we came adept at uh, negotiating and and uh, and bargaining, uh, you know, proper benefits for workers and their families and communities. So that's sort of the thumbnail sketch where the steelworkers are at. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me, and I do appreciate that. Even even admitting that is a process, right? So we're we're learning as we go. We're learning the hard way. Um, we find that with uh, combustible dust science, with safety uh, approaches in general, with ways to treat workers, with ways to treat employers. I think we're going to get in a bit of all of that in in the next couple episodes with you. Um, how did how did you get involved with USW and what's your role with with the union today? Uh, well, I'm the Western Canadian director uh, of the Steelworkers in Western Canada for for the purposes of the podcast. Or Manitoba West to BC, Nunavut, the Northwest Territories, and the Yukon. So it's a big territory, uh, and uh, I'm the senior uh, uh, elected steelworker 
across Western Canada. So, so, so doing that, I, um, I, I'm responsible for, uh, you know, all, all of our activities uh, across the West. Um, my background was I started off as a miner. So I, so I actually worked in a couple of mines and, uh, and, and again, I was school, schooled in, in, you know, the hard knocks of mining, which was, uh, which was always a difficult industry, you know, and I was a driller as well. So I was just talking about dust. I was exposed to a lot of it. So uh, I became manic about dust exposure, primarily for respiratory illnesses. Um, you know, the explosive part of it came later. I, uh, I also uh, am the uh, worker co-chair of Industrial, which is the Global uh, Union Federation. It represents about 55 million people uh, around the world, and my expertise is in mine safety. So um, I, um, I, again, am schooled in, in a, I guess, the, the school of hard knocks. Uh, you know, we learn from examples around the world. And, you know, we talk about Westray. I was always also involved in the, the explosion of the, uh, the Pike River coal mine in uh, New Zealand you know, over the years uh, have, have offered some insight into some of the uh, some of the tragedies that unfortunately were plagued with globally. Yeah, thank you for sharing. And I it's it's interesting the the lineage of combustible dust. I've done a lot of work in the history, and there's a couple of distinct paths that that came together. One was coal mining, you know, methane gas explosions followed by coal dust explosions in in mine shafts, and the challenges there. And back in the early 1900s. When general industry started recording, not that they weren't happening before, but recording grain elevator explosions and things like that, and they couldn't figure out what was going on, the the coal miners sort of got together. Said, "Well, we we've sort of already seen this, and that actually created some coalitions um, in North America that started some of the the research, led to things like the early NPA standards and that." So, it, it's it's a really interesting field in terms of the science where where my background comes from, and it's a really tragic field in terms of you know, the, the amount of lives that were lost to learn some of those lessons. In terms of combustible dust, then, is that something that the USW, is it a focus area with the USW? When did they get involved? Did it is a focus area? Can you just kind of talk a bit about that from, from your perspective? Sure, uh, Chris. I mean, we started, I, I think, uh, you know, the real uh, genesis for this was we, we knew about uh, explosive dust and we've done, uh, you know, we also, uh, because we're an international union, are exposed to uh, explosions dust explosions uh, uh you know around the world but but in the united states we uh, you know we did some work on uh, on uh, on combustible dust or explosive dusts and uh, uh you know did some videos uh, early on i i got to say back um, you know probably back in the 80s we started uh, you know understanding a little bit more about this not that not that uh, we we didn't understand because coal mines have been blowing up forever, uh, you know. So we knew it there. So of grain elevators, I mean, uh, you know, anywhere you have fine dust, there's a possibility of explosion. Uh, it, you know, I, I, again, I think I think our our first intervention was you know dust in in mines, dust in steel mills. So so for example, exposure to silica dust, you know, when you're sandblasting or blasting uh, vessels in a steel mill, uh, you know, we, we we knew the dangers on the respiratory side. We also were aware of the dangers of explosive dust, but but there's, there seemed to be a lack of understanding by the regulators. So so, so uh, you know government officials, 
seem not to concentrate very much on on the explosive qualities of dust, but more more in the in the respiratory hazards of dust. And um, you know that's where we started to concentrate. So when Westray blew up, we were in an organizing drive and. In, in 1992 uh, in Stellarton. And we'd actually, the day the mine exploded, we had uh, obtained enough cards to apply to the Nova Scotia Ministry of Labor or Department of Labor for certification. We, we, were, we were ultimately certified there. Uh, this was just an act of commitment that we made to the, uh, to the victims and survivors of Westray that uh, we would never leave them alone. And we pledged at that time there'd never be another Westray, and and we really get uh, get educated on explosive dust uh, or re-educated. And I think um, and, and going through the inquiry, we, we learned a tremendous amount about uh, about dust uh, and explosive dust. And I remember in the report, uh, that's a quote from a from a French researcher: "The most important thing to come out of a mine is the miner." I was missed at Westray, obviously. Yeah, I, I always tell the story, if you drive, if you're in Nova Scotia and you drive through to Cape Breton, um, so if you fly into Halifax, you drive north, you go past Truro, you go to Cape Breton, um, it's a few hours drive, and there's a big bend in the, the highway. It's pretty noticeable. It's a, it's a pretty big bend. The ignition in the cavern of methane gas explosion in Westray occurred just below that bend. And when I say just below, quite deep in the ground, but you can kind of see it under the highway. And if you go to where the memorial is with Westray, um, you have to go off the highway, you have to drive up a couple of streets and you get to that memorial. I think it's three kilometers away. Uh, not far from there is the entrance to the mine where you can see the amount of damage when the explosion propagated out. And I like to relay that message to folks when I'm talking about combustible dust because sometimes you think about explosions in a small dust collector. This was an explosion that propagated three kilometers from the ignition location, three kilometers from one point A to point B, fueled by coal dust throughout the mine shaft. So extremely large. And I want to try to explain to people how big the scale of a dust explosion is. It's really how much fuel you have at the end of the day. So if you're ever driving from from Halifax to, to Cape Breton and you notice that big bend in the road between Truro and Cape Breton, um, that's that's where the ignition location was underneath the ground and then, and then propagated out. Yeah, and anybody that goes to the memorial, there's still 11 bodies underground, and the approximate location is under the memorial. Yeah, it's pretty near and dear to my heart. I did a lot of research in, in my academic degree. In 92, I was uh, five, so <laughs> it didn't hit me too hard at that point. Um, but in my academic degree, I did a lot of reading. In the actual introduction of my PhD thesis, I'll read the first two paragraphs, and then, then I want to go in this health history report. So my PhD thesis, first two paragraphs, Introduction, on the morning of May 9th, 1992, 26 underground miners were finishing their shift at the Westray Mine in the community of Plymouth, Pictou County, Nova Scotia. The mine had just opened seven months earlier and promised to create 300 needed jobs in the area. Secured by $100 million in provincial and federal loans, the mine was expected to deliver 700,000 tons of coal per year to Nova Scotia Power in the first 15 years of operation. All that changed at 5.18 a.m. when a spark from drilling equipment at the mine face ignited a methane gas explosion followed by a coalesce explosion, which propagated through the mine. Mine equipment and the entrance were destroyed and the blast shook houses kilometers away. All 26 men working in the mine were fatally injured, were killed um, in what would be the largest workplace catastrophe in Nova Scotia since the 1917 explosion in Halifax Harbor. I put that at the front end of my thesis as a bit of a 
story before you get into the really technical math and, and, and academic part, but to highlight the challenge with combustible dust, highlight some of the motivation on why we do what we do. Um, and it still drives the reason that we have dust safety science today and bring folks like yourself on. Hopefully I got some of the facts right, <laughs> right there because I read all the reports and that and I know you were much more involved than I was. So that's my placement of it. I did review a bit of the health history report, uh, which documents USW's fight to prevent workplace deaths from that time and beyond. Can you just walk us through then, you know, what are some of the main points of that report? What are some of the takeaways from Westray that the USW then has, has sort of taken and trying to be working with since that time for, for workplace safety? Sure, Chris. The health history uh, is really, I mean, we, we could have wrote a thesis on, on workplace dying and, uh, and injuries in, in Canada. And we wanted to, to show a picture of what happens when uh, regulators and government fail to act. Coming out of health history, uh, you know, we have a campaign which we're going to talk about, Stop the Killing and Force the Law. Westray was an example of, uh, of just simple negligence, neglects. Justice Richard said all these uh, words, stupidity, uh, indifference. Um, and it's quoted in Hell's history. And it, it, it was just so glaring what the problems were. The, the, the owners of Westray Career Resources promised the safest mine in the world with the best technology. It was absolutely abysmal. And the, minute the, the, the Department of Mines had an inspector, inspector's office. You could walk to the mine site in about five minutes. And, and you know, they, they, one of the inspectors uh, testified at the Westray inquiry. He had written orders uh, a week before the, uh, the mine exploded to clean up the coal dust, to ventilate the, the um, clean up the coal dust, neutralize it with lime dust, uh, it, it was the order, and, 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 and properly ventilate. When he was asked if, he, if he'd done any follow-up, he said, no, because I was afraid the mine was going to explode. That kind of negligence uh, by regulators was just so painfully obvious in the Westry explosion. Uh, and when, when workers were interviewed, survivors were interviewed, you know, taping your pant cuffs because, because a coal dust would creep up their pant legs. Methane that would, 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 people would pass out from the, the amounts of methane in there, covering methane detectors or methanometers so, so that the mine wouldn't shut down. There's automatic shutdowns on equipment. All that was, was painfully obvious for anybody that uh, uh, was regulating, and it, it was left unchecked. So, so when Justice Richards said a predictable path to disaster, it was very predictable. There's a cookbook recipe for blowing up a coal mine. And the owners of Westray followed it to the letter. All the ingredients were there. There's a lot of main points there, like deactivating the methane sensors. I, I do want to, I, I always highlight that one when I talk about the Westray story. So the methane sensors were going off because there's too much methane in the mine. So instead of, you know, addressing that problem or letting the automatic shutdown happen, workers were, I'm not sure if I can say workers were ordered to, but the end result was that the mine sensors were deactivated in such a way that they, so instead of addressing the problem, you deactivate the sensors. So does that sound like the safest mine in the world? <laughs> you, have, you have more experience in mining than me, but it doesn't sound right to me. That's the right solution. It, it was far from it. It was far from it. And I call it, I call this, uh, Chris, uh, <laughs> West Trade. And, and again, survivors will tell you this story. It was economic heroin. 
people went to work in Stellarton uh, or Plymouth or New Glasgow, wherever they were at. It's a depressed area of Nova Scotia. Wages and well, jobs were not plentiful at that time. And they took these jobs and, you know, suddenly you're making a good paycheck. You could actually paint your house or maybe buy a car. Or maybe one of your kids thought about going to university. And there was an opportunity for people to do that. It was big money. And some of the comments uh, from management there is, you know, like the job, I'll hire your brother. There's the gate, get out. So workers knew that when you were disabling methodometers and uh, or when you were working in, in, in areas that were just simply uh, uh, unsafe, they knew that. And, and, and what they shared with me, some of them was, we just hope nothing would happen to us. And even today, when I talk to some of the survivors, the regret from some of those workers, some of them are damaged for life because they say, well, if only we had have refused, if only we had have taken a stand, this wouldn't have happened. And that uh, that's, you know, one of the long lasting, lasting uh, legacies of, uh, of Westray, which we tried to capture in Hell's history to bring it forward. It happens. You know, 26 miners died in, in an instant there. We, we think it was less than five seconds uh, from ignition to uh, the death. But it happens, you know, 26 workers at a time or one worker at a time where there's negligence. Uh, and, and that's the purpose of Hell's History is let's stop. Let's stop uh, negligence. Let's enforce the law. Let's stop the killing. It, it's pretty simple. And that's the, that's the message throughout Hell's History. You know, we uh, we got a lot of work to do. Yeah, a couple of terms there. This economic heroin is a is an interesting term, and there's a. I just I had to unplug my my um, headphones to to grab this book off my bookshelf. Um, it's called The Spirit of Spring Hill. It's uh, miners, wives, widows, rescuers, and their children tell true stories of Spring Hill's coal mining disasters. This is not Westray. It's actually several decades prior to Westray. I think there were two or three large explosions in Spring Hill. Not all coal dust. Some was a, one was a methane bump and another one. But Cheryl McKay goes through and her grandfather maybe was involved and he didn't, he changed his shift the day that the largest of disasters occurred to go hunting and and the guy who changed shift with didn't make it out of the mine. And she goes through and interviews all of the wives and widows and miners and made out. And you hear, we talk about economic heroin. That's the stories that they tell are a lot about that, right? It's like, we knew that there were hazards here. In that case, the the large explosion, I believe the design was such that all of the structural members of the mine were all co, I can't think of a better word than co-located. So one failed, they kind of the whole thing failed and they knew that was a problem. But, you know, the attitude of, well, it's never going to happen to me or, you know, it's hope, clash your fingers, hope it's not going to happen today. Um, that's that, that economic heroin kind of piece coming into play. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's painfully obvious when you talk to people that uh, that work there, even even now, almost thirty years out, they're still damaged. Some are still very damaged because of it. You know, the guilt of not taking action, and nobody will ever be held accountable for the uh, for the negligence that uh, was involved in that. Uh, nobody. I want to talk a bit about some of the work that USW's some of the open challenges and then, you know, some of the work that we're doing today, but is there anything else from that Hills history report? We'll certainly include a link to it um, in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 170. I just grabbed a link to the spirit of Spring Hill book. We'll put that in there as well. And anything else that we've talked about in this interview, we'll include the resources there, but anything, any other key takeaways or any other points you want to talk through about that report before we move on to 
challenges? Yeah, we did a we we did it we did a number of small stories. Uh, one about Sam Fitzpatrick was a young fellow that was killed on a on a construction site in British Columbia, but a boulder rolled down and, and killed him. We talked about the negligence there. There was a criminal charge laid under the Westray Act, and uh, and just recently uh, the Crown stayed the charges or not stayed them; they just wouldn't proceed. Took us 12 years to get that uh, case before uh, at least started to go to court. Uh, So it's a it's a tragic story. We're still fighting uh, on that one. Uh, Another one is Lyle Hewer. We we did the first, to our knowledge, the first ever private prosecution under the Westray Bill uh, for for, I call it corporate murder. But um, and we did a private prosecution, knowing full well, uh, Chris, that we wouldn't we wouldn't get to the finish line. That that the government. Uh, of British Columbia of the day would would seize the case, which was their rights. But we got it in front of a judge, and the judge ruled there was enough evidence to proceed to criminal trial. And at that point, the government, uh, Christy Clark government uh, back then, seized the case, which was their prerogative, and uh, and, and stopped the case, dismissed it. Uh, we just wanted to do that uh, to to move to move the yardsticks down the field to say it is possible. <laughs> under the, you know 26 miners died for something uh let's enforce the law and in this case it was uh it, it, we we did establish that it was enough to proceed and uh and they didn't go and then of course we got the Babine lakeland uh, disaster covered in hell's history as well and i'll pull out i just uh the the westray bill is bill c45 um and that's federal legislation added to the Canadian Criminal Code, became law on March 31st, 2004, uh, as a response to the large, I don't want to say large drawn out process, but I don't mean that in a derogatory way to the people involved. Just it takes a long time. Like you said, it took 12 years for the Sam Fitzpatrick process. So, so the incident in Westray happened in 92. Then by 2004, we had the Westray bill in place. Um, and this is a bill that allows the attribution of criminal liability to organizations, including their representatives and those direct the, who direct the work of others. Um, I think that's something we're probably going to get into here and, in, you know, moving ahead in today's podcast and next week as well. But just so folks have an understanding that that's the, the Westray bill is, has rules for attributing criminal liability to organizations, including the representatives who direct the work of others. And in particular, if they direct the work of others in an unsafe manner. And so the reason I want to pull that up was, okay, that's 2004. You're saying the Sam Pat or no, sorry, the Lyle Hewer was really the first time that that's been used to your your knowledge. And what year would have been that? I, I, was, uh, I can't recall the year now. It's quite, quite, quite a ways out. But but I, I just want to say on, the, on, on establishing uh, the Bill C-45, it, it took 12 years as well. And it took us, we lobbied uh, Parliament Hill on three separate occasions to get the bill passed. It was passed unanimously by Parliament. Back then, we had, I think, five parties, uh, and it was unanimous, uh, which, which I don't think happens very often in Parliament. But um, but, but that one did. Uh, unfortunately, uh, politicians didn't didn't say much. There has been some successful prosecutions of uh, you know under the Westray Bill, uh, Metron uh, Metron uh, construction of Toronto. There's, there was a jail sentence. Uh, Ontario and Quebec lead. Uh, here at that time, there had not been a, a prosecution under the Westray Bill in British Columbia. I guess sort of rounding out this this beginning podcast, talking about some of this history then, what what are the challenges that remain open and that USW is still working on tackling today? I think you mentioned it, one of the 
catchphrases that I, I've come across to stop the killing and force of law. So maybe you could talk about that one, but any other challenges as well? Well, I, mean, I think the biggest challenge is to convince politicians to, for, to, to enforce the law. I mean, you know, in some ways we say grow a backbone. You, you know, we got laws for all kinds of things. And I, uh, I say this, Chris, to politicians all the time. If you're, uh, if there's a motor vehicle accident, the police show up. It doesn't matter what police, municipal, RCMP, it doesn't matter, OPP, it doesn't matter. They show up and they investigate. They look for criminality. Uh, they look for impairment, uh, excessive speed, dangerous driving, all the things that are, are listed as uh, criminal code convictions. Once they establish, uh, once they have established there was no criminal code conviction, they instantly refer to uh, the Motor Vehicle Act for the appropriate province. That seems to be pretty easy. In an occupational death, the police uh, oftentimes were not showing up or, or they were showing up uh, when the coroner released the body, depending on the jurisdiction. No real criminal investigation was undertaken. And what we asked for is one of the pillars of, uh, of the Stop the Killing campaign was to train police officers that it is their jurisdiction in any death in Canada to, to establish criminality. If somebody dies of natural causes in their home, the police have to go in and verify that it was a death by natural causes. Workplaces seem to be exempt from any scrutiny. Uh, and, and it was just, well, it's the cost of doing business. People die on the job every year. In fact, in Canada, about a thousand people die because of their work every year. And, and we thought, what, what part of this uh, don't politicians and, and regulators in the province, provinces and territories understand? We also wanted to train Crown Council in, in different provinces on how to prosecute uh, workplace deaths and serious injuries where there was, was it, where there was potential criminal negligence. Not every death, if there's a thousand deaths a year, not every one of them is going to be a criminal negligence case. But some of them might be. And, and we, we thought, you know, if we could, if we could see uh, proper training of police officers and proper training of Crown, then, then you'd only need a few maybe to make the paradigm shift in industry to say, boy, we, we had better take care of this. You know, interesting, I, I saw something recently where, where a mining company was fined like $62 million for polluting a river, uh, and rightfully so. <laughs> Kill a worker, so what? Um, uh, you know, that's just the cost of doing business. And, and that's what we tried to establish through Stop the Killing. We're still working at it. Uh, it you know, I have seen a change, Chris. I mean, we are we are moving the needle. It's painfully slow, but it's moving. Well, I'm happy to hear that, and it makes a lot of sense to me. Training, you know, police officers, stops and criminality, training crown prosecutors. Having been involved with you know these sort of legal cases, one of the challenges that can come up is that the companies are much more well funded, for lack of a better word, than the workers' families that are fatally injured. So, you know, training the, the, the crown or even giving resources to help to know what the process is to challenge some of these things and fight some of these in, things in the legal court of law or the legal system or giving more tools, uh, I, I think it's completely necessary. And it makes a lot of sense from that perspective that you're providing. Yeah, we, we for the first time ever as, as a union, uh, we, we took it, we started at the federal level. And as I say, lobbied uh, three successive governments uh, over 12 years. 
uh, we took it to provincial levels uh, and in every province we met with the attorneys general and others uh, to see if we could get them to act. They made all kinds of commitments that they wouldn't promptly didn't. And then, then uh, you know, we traveled around and met with politicians of every stripe to try to get them to enforce the law. And I'll tell you a quick story. I met with the uh, with the minister in Saskatchewan and uh, asked him to support our campaign after a worker was killed there. And this guy sat in front of me and cried. He says, I, I lost my cousin in a workplace accident at a potash mine. I said, well, then surely you'll support us. <laughs> he said, I can't. <laughs> I can't, you know, depending on the government. And uh, I, I always say this, that, uh, and maybe this is a bit callous, but I, I believe it to be true. Uh, if, it's a, if it's a hard right government, they don't want to put their friends in jail. There's the resources. It's a challenging set of issues. It's got a lot of different sides to it. I guess that's the, the, the opposite of your point. <laughs> your point is actually pretty simple. I wrote down here in big letters, simple S-I-M-P-L-E, just enforce the law. So I, I don't know, somewhere in the middle of, of those two statements, I guess, lies where we're at today in terms of these challenges and workplace fatalities. I've talked to Crown Council and they said, well, we, we don't understand the law. And I'm thinking, well, <laughs> your job is to understand it. That's why you're Crown Council. That's that's your job. I also talked to one, one uh, just one Crown Council. So, so this is a one-off, I'm sure. But this guy said to me, we'd rather prosecute unfair driving charges because we know we can get a conviction. It's really hard to do these ones. <laughs> okay. So, so that's your attitude. And it seems to be to be somewhat true. Okay. I think we'll probably cut this first episode of the, the podcast on some of this history of United Steelworkers, um, some of the things that they fought for in terms of, of worker safety, in terms of you know being able to go to, to work and come home at the end of the day. I do appreciate your open discussion of this. I do appreciate the work you've done over the years, your involvement through mining, through Westray, through uh, United Steelworkers and what you've done for the families there. We've certainly had a, a couple of survivors and their their families on the podcast. We had Jane Gill back in episode 120. Her grandfather was in the 1916 Peter Bro Quaker Boats explosion and fire. Might have been her great-grandfather, but she talked about the impact that had on on multiple generations of families. Um and, and even the people of Peterborough today. Uh, we had Tammy Spivy on episode 126 with the Unite Support and Memorial Workplace Fatalities. And she talked about her brother, uh, I believe his name is Sean, was Sean Boone, died in the Hayes Lemmers uh, aluminum dust explosions. And what she went through and what her family went through those days uh, after that incident. Um, so they're all in their words. If you want to listen to those podcast episodes, I recommend you do that to see the impact on not just the worker, although that is a large one, but on the community, on the family, on everyone else that's involved in their their life, basically. And, and it's an impact that doesn't, you know, it doesn't go away after a week or a day or a year or a month. Um, it's lifetimes and generations of impact, like Steve mentioned with Westray and, and the people in the surrounding communities still being impacted by by something that was, well, 30 years ago this year. So, yeah, Steve, I want to say thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing. We're going to have uh, Steve on the podcast again next week. So we're talking about the next steps, I guess you will, in the story. Talking about the linkage between Westray with Babine sawmill explosion with Lakeland Mills in BC. And some of the things that have come out of that and, and really discussing more about the story of leading towards, you know, stopping the killing and enforcing the law and, and the work that USW is doing in that area. So, Thank you, Steve, for coming on this episode, and we're looking forward to having you back on the podcast next week. Thanks, Chris. 
So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Steve Hunt, USW, United Steelworkers District 3 Director. Uh, that's the, the district for Western Canada. We're talking through the history of the United Steelworkers. Uh, we talk through what they do in industry, what role they play um, on education, on lobbying for workers' rights, on helping create safe workplaces for workers. We talk about Steve and his role starting you know, back in, in a mining career, moving through with USW, uh, into the role that he's doing today, and really what he's seen the hard way in terms of workplace safety, in terms of occupational safety, in terms of process safety, and all the challenges that can come up there. We talked about the West Drake coal mine explosion in 1992 that tragically took the lives of 26 uh, miners that day when it happened in, in May 9th, 1992. And we talked about a bit of the history before that with combustible dust, and then a lot of the the effort and focus around that um, leading into the, the West Ray bill leading into this push to increase criminal responsibility for workplace incidents and workplace tragedies. Uh, I appreciate Steve coming on and sharing. I appreciate the work the United Steelworkers has done. We're going to have Steve come back on the podcast next week and talk a little bit more about some more recent incidents and, and continue this discussion of the work that's been done in this area with, with USW. So as always, I want to say thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Hope you have a safe and productive week ahead, and I appreciate everything you're doing in the industry's handling combustible dust, making them safer with the work that you do out there every day. 